Chapter 14 of The Double Life of Mr. Alfred Burton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Pseudonymous Nerd in Mumbai, India. Chapter 14 The Legend of the Perfect Food. A foretaste of autumn had crept into the midst of summer. There were grey clouds in the sky, a north wind booming across the moors. Burton even shivered as he walked down the hill to the house where she lived. There was still gorse, still heather, still a few roses in the garden, and a glimmering vision of the beds of the other flowers in the background. But the sun which gave them life was hidden. Burton looked eagerly into the garden and his heart sank. There was no sign there of any living person. After a moment's hesitation, he opened the gate, passed up the neat little path and rang the bell. It was opened after the briefest of delays by the trim parlour maid. Is your mistress at home? he asked. Miss Edith has gone to London for two days, sir, the girl announced. The professor is in his study, sir. Burton stood quite still for a moment. It was absurd that his heart should be so suddenly heavy, that all the spring and buoyancy should have gone out of life. For the first time he realised the direction in which his thoughts had been travelling since he had left his rooms an hour ago. He had to remind himself that it was the professor whom he had gone to see. Mr. Cooper received him graciously, if a little vaguely. Burton wasted no time, however, in announcing the nature of his errand. Directly he produced the sheets, the professor became interested. The faint odour which seemed shaken out of them into the room stimulated his curiosity. He sniffed at it with great content. <laughs> strange, he remarked. Very strange. I haven't smelled that perfume since I was at the excavators at Chaldee. A real oriental flavour, young man, about your manuscript. There is very little of it, Burton said. Just a page or so, which apparently the writer never had time to finish. The sheets came into my hand in a rather curious way, and I should very much like to have an exact translation of them. I don't even know what the language is. I thought perhaps you might be able to help me. I will explain to you later, if you allow me, the exact nature of my interest in them. Mr. Cooper took the pages into his hand with a benevolent smile. At first glance, however, his expression changed. It was obvious that he was greatly interested. It was obvious also that he was correspondingly surprised. My dear young man, he exclaimed, My dear Mr. Mr. Burton, why, this is wonderful. Where did you get these sheets, do you say? Are you honestly telling me that they were written within the last 1,000 years? Without a doubt, Mr. Burton replied, they were written in London a few months ago. Mr. Cooper was already busy surrounding himself with strange-looking volumes. His face displayed the most utmost enthusiasm in his task. 
It is most amazing, this, he declared, drawing up a chair to the table. These sheets are written in a language which has been dead as a medium of actual intercourse over two thousand years. You meet with it sometimes in old Egyptian manuscripts. There is a monastery somewhere near the excavations which I had the honour to conduct in Syria, where an ancient prayer book contained prayers in this language. Literally, I cannot translate this for you. Actually, I will. I can get at the sense, I can get at the sense quite well. But if one could only find the man who wrote it, he is the man who I would like to see. Mr. Burton, if the pages were written so recently, where is the writer? He is dead, Burton replied. Mr. Cooper sighed. Um, well, well, he continued, starting upon his task with avidity. We will talk about him presently. This is indeed miraculous. I am deeply grateful to you for having brought me this manuscript. Mr. Cooper was busy for the next quarter of an hour. His expression, as he turned up dictionaries and made notes, was still full of the liveliest and most intense interest. Presently, he leaned back in his chair. He kept one hand upon the loose sheets of the manuscript, while with the other he removed his spectacles and closed his eyes for a moment. My young friend, he said, did you ever hear a quaint Asiatic legend? Perhaps a superstition, you could say, that many and many a wise man for four thousand years spent his nights and his days, not as our more modern scientists of a few hundred years ago have done, in the attempt to turn baser metals into gold, but in the attempt to constitute from simple elements the perfect food for man. Burton shook his head. He was somewhat mystified. I have never heard anything of the sort, he acknowledged. The whole literature of ancient Egypt and the neighbouring countries, Mr. Cooper proceeded, abounds with mystical stories of this perfect food. It was to come to man in the nature of a fruit. It was to give him not eternal life, for that was valueless, but eternal and absolute understanding so that nothing in life could be harmful, nothing save objects and thoughts of beauty could present themselves to the understanding of the fortunate person who partook of it. These pages which you have brought to me translate are concerned with this superstition. The writer claims that he has created this fruit, whose spiritual result upon a normal man is such as to turn him into a thing of, from a thing of clay into something approaching a god. Did he mention anything about bees? Burton asked anxiously. Mr. Cooper nodded benignantly. The perfect food referred to, he said, appears to have been produced in the shape of small beans. They are to be eaten with great care and to ensure permanency in the results. A green leaf of the little tree is to follow the consumption of the bean. Burton sprang to his feet. A thousand thanks, Professor, he cried. That is the one thing we were seeking to discover. The leaves, of course. Mr. Cooper looked at his visitor in amazement. My young friend, he said, are you going to tell me that you have seen one of these beans? Not only that, but I have eaten one, Burton said. In fact, I have eaten two. 
Mr. Cooper was greatly excited. Where are they? Show me one. Where is the tree? How did the man come to write this? Where did he write it? Let me see one of the beans. Burton produced the little silver snuff box in which he carried them. With his left hand, he kept the professor away. Mr. Cooper, he said, I cannot let you touch or handle them until I am sure of this superstition you have told me. They mean more to me than I can tell you. Yet there they are. And let me tell you this. That superstition you have spoken of has truth in it. These beans are indeed a spiritual food. They alter character. They have the most amazing effect upon a man's moral system. Young man, Mr. Cooper insisted. I must eat one. Burton shook his head. Mr. Cooper, he said, there are reasons why I find it very hard to deny you anything. But as regards those beans, you will neither eat one nor even hold it in your hand. Sit down and I shall tell you a story which sounds wit and might have happened a thousand years ago. It happened in the last three months. Listen. Burton told his story with absolute sincerity. The professor was intensely interested. It was perhaps strange that, extraordinary though it was, he never for one minute doubted the truth of what he heard. When Burton had finished, he rose to his feet in a state of great excitement. This is indeed wonderful, he declared. It is more wonderful even than you can know of. The legend of the perfect food appears in the manuscripts of many centuries. It antedates literature by generations. There is a tomb in the interior of Japan, sacred to a saint, who for seventy years worked for the production of this very bean. That, let me tell you, was three thousand years ago. My young friend, you have indeed been favoured. Let me understand this thing, Burton said anxiously. Those pages say that if one eats a green leaf after the bean, the change wrought in one will be absolutely permanent. That is so, the professor assented. Now all that you have to do is eat a green leaf from the little tree. After that, you will have no more need of these three beans and therefore you can give them to me. Burton made no attempt to produce his little silver box. First of all, he said, I must test the truth of this. I cannot run any risks. I must go and eat a leaf. If in three months no change has taken place in me, I will lend you a bean to examine. I can do no more than that. Until this matter is absolutely settled, they are worth more than life itself to me. Mr. Cooper seemed annoyed. Surely, he protested, you are not going to ask me to wait three months until I can examine one of these. Three months will soon pass, Burton replied. Until that time is up, I could not part with them. But you can't imagine, the professor pleaded, how marvelously, marvelously interesting this is to me. Remember that I have spent all my life digging among the archives and the literature and the superstitions of these pre-Egyptian people. You are the first man in the world outside a little circle of fellow workers to come to speak of me of this food. Your story that how came into your hands is the most amazing romance I have ever heard. It confirms many of my theories. It is wonderful. Do you realize what has happened? You in your insignificant person, the professor continued, shaking his finger at his visitor, have tasted the result of thousands of years of unceasing study. 
wise men in their cells before Athens was built, before pyramids were conceived, were thinking out this matter in strange parts of Egypt, Syria and Asia. For generations their dream has been looked upon as a thing as elusive as the philosopher's stone, the transmutation of metals, any of these unsolved problems. For five hundred years, since the day of a Russian scientist who lived on the Black Sea, but whose name for the moment I have forgotten, the whole subject has lain dead. It is indeed true that the fairy tales of one generation become the science of the next. Our own learned men have been blind. The whole chain of reasoning is so clear. Every article of human food contains its separate particles affecting the moral as well as the physical systems. Why should it have been deemed necromancy to endeavour to combine these parts to evolve by careful elimination and change to the perfect food? In the house, young man, which you have told me of, there died the hero of the greatest discovery which has ever been made since the world began to spin upon its orbit. Will Miss Edith be back tomorrow? Burton asked. The professor stared at him. Miss Edith, he replied. Oh, my daughter, is she not in? She is away for two days, your servant told me, Burton replied. Perhaps so, perhaps so, the professor agreed. She has gone to her aunt's, very likely in Chelsea. My sister has a house there in Bromsgrove Terrace. Burton rose to his feet. He held out his hand for the manuscript. I am extremely obliged to you, my dear sir. Now I must go. The professor gripped the manuscript in his hand. He was no longer a harmless and benevolent old gentleman. He was like a wild animal about to be robbed of this prey. No, he cried. You must not take these away. You must not even think of it. Leave me these sheets just as they are. I will go no further back. There are several words, the meaning of which I have only guessed. Leave them with me for a few days and I will make you an exact translation. Very well, Burton assented. And one bean, leave me one bean only. I promise not to eat it, not to dissect it, not to subject it to any experiments of a sort. Let me just have a look at it to be sure what you have told me is not a hallucination. Burton shook his head. I dare not part with one. I am going back, straight back, to test the leaf theory. If it is correct, I shall keep my promise. And will you remember me to Miss Edith when she returns? To Miss Edith? Yes, yes, of course. Mr. Cooper declared impatiently. When shall you be down again, my young friend? He went on honestly. I want to hear more of your experiences. I want you to tell me the whole thing over again. I shall get a signed statement from you. There are several points in connection with what you say which bear out a favourite theory of mine. I will come in a few days if I may, Mr. Burton assured him. The professor walked his guest to the front door. He seemed reluctant to let him go. Take care of yourself, Mr. Burton, he said. Yours is a precious life. On no account subject yourselves to any risk. Be careful of crossings. Don't expose yourself to inclement weather. Keep away from any place likely to harbour infectious disease. I should very much like to have a meeting in London of a few of my friends if I could ensure your presence. When I come down again, Mr. Burton promised, we will discuss this. He shook hands and hurried away. In less than an hour and a half, he was in Mr. Waddington's room.
The latter had just arrived from office. Mr. Warrington, Burton exclaimed, the little tree on which the beans grew, where is it? Mr. Warrington was taken aback. But I picked all the beans, he replied. There were only the leaves left. Never mind that, Burton cried. It is the least we want. The tree, where is it? Quick, I want myself to feel absolutely safe. Mr. Warrington's face was blank. You have heard the translation of those sheets? I have, Burton answered hastily. I will tell you all about it directly, as soon as you have brought me the tree. Mr. Warrington turned a little pale. I gave it to a child in the street on my way home from Idlemere House, he declared. There was no sign of any more beans coming, and I had more than enough to carry. End of chapter 14 of The Double Life of Mr. Alfred Burton